0: Around the world, the last great message of the Creator is being carried with the mighty power of His enabling Spirit. Millions in Russia, America, Africa, Australia, and 200 other countries are saying yes to Christ, where the people once languished in the valley of the shadow of death. The light of the everlasting gospel is now shining. John and Beverly Carter, whose calling has led them to minister in many countries, now invite you to join them for an exciting hour of discovery as the Word of God brings hope in despair, light in darkness, meaning in confusion, joy in sorrow, and life in death. I would like to give to our family across North America, on 3ABN and the other stations, A little update on the Evangelism Center at Arcadia, Los Angeles, California. Two months ago this was not even a dream because we knew nothing about it. But then all of a sudden God brought this property to our attention and then God started to open doors. I tell you, He had to open some big doors people my friends across North America say how much? Well I said we need to find a million dollars. They said well that's expensive And then I said deposit. (laughs) (laughs) Things in California are much more expensive than most other places. And God has called us to minister here in this great metropolis, one of the great cities of the world. The cost of the facility, not including closing costs, is $3.1 million. And when I first went and looked at the property and took Beverly and members of my team I said, surely the presence of the Lord is here. This is what we have been searching for for ten years, during which time. We have paid almost $700,000 in rent. And then when we discovered that to continue our ministry effectively we had to find our own property, There there were not two ways about it. Either we got our own property or else the work of God that we have been doing overseas would be forced to close down. And so we took it to our board we took it to our church and some folks said it's impossible you cannot raise a million dollars in this period of time. I'm pleased to tell my audience, my friends across North America that to date by the grace of God in cash and pledges we have raised a million dollars. However, however, to secure the loan We have discovered that the bank demands more than a third. We had figured on one third. We now must raise $400,000 in the next two or three weeks. And we believe it is doable because we believe in the God who supplies our needs. What difference is it going to make when we get this property which is situated in one of the most beautiful places in the LA complex, metroplex. You see it looks out into the mountains, it has a large parking lot, it has a magnificent auditorium, it has what we prayed that God would give us only more so. What will we, will we be able to do? We'll be able to use this building seven days a week to preach the gospel of Christ and to make television and radio programs that will stretch right across North America and go into the ex-Soviet Union. We believe that we are on target because we believe that God is leading us. And we would like to say to our dear friends across North America who are watching particularly on Three Angels Broadcasting Network, please join us in this great outreach of faith. Listen. We are living in the last days. We believe that Jesus is coming soon, and we believe that the mission of the church is to preach the everlasting gospel. For this hour we came into the world, and we're asking you to stand with us in this great project, and please, as God speaks to your heart, write to me, John Carter, Post Office Box, 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358, thank you in Jesus' name. Okay. Just a few days ago I received an emergency phone call from Vadim in Russia. Most of you folks here have met Vadim because we brought him over a year or two back. The dean for a number of great evangelistic campaigns has been my translator. How old is dean? He is 22 years of age. Every year he conducts eight evangelistic crusades. Already this young man who had been training to be an orthodox priest has baptized more than 3,000 ex-communists an atheist. And he told me we are having real problems. He said I opened up a campaign just a few weeks ago and he said before the meetings were underway the Russian government officials came in and turned us out of the auditorium because of religious prejudice. He said it is becoming more difficult to preach the gospel in this great land, the lands of the ex-Soviet Union. And I said, what are you doing now, Vadim? He said, we've moved to another city. I said, is it cold? He said, no. I said, what is the temperature? He said, minus 20. But it's been colder. What is the auditorium like? Is it heated? No, the auditorium is not heated. How many people are coming? A thousand people are coming. Are you having any problems? Yes, he said, continual problems. We have threats upon our lives. I said to him, Why, Vatim, is a young man like you doing this work? He said, Because, Pastor Carter, men and women without Christ are lost. He has received invitations, like many of his brethren, to leave Russia and come to America where he can be paid a good salary. I said to him, Vatim, How much are the brethren paying you? He said, 77 Zero dollars a month. Los Angeles has been inundated with a flood of Russian speaking people, 600,000. They've come to this country to get away from the cold and the poverty and the hunger and all of those awful things that have happened since the collapse of communism. But Vadim and other young preachers are staying there and are being paid $70 a month running eight campaigns a year preaching in the snow and pouring their hearts out for Christ because they have a conviction that the greatest work that a person can do is to bring Christ to the lost. And you may say to me, but... It's wonderful to know that they're being supported by a great world organization that is paying for these crusades. Alas, it is not so. By and large, they are by themselves standing alone with practically no support from the General Conference or the church in the Western world. I said, Vadim, Where do you get your money from? He said, I go to members in the church. I go to businessmen and I tell them what we are doing and I raise my own budgets. I said, it sounds familiar. Because while the church seems to have money for everything, there is very little money for the precious blood of Jesus. I said to the dean, today take courage because he called me also because I'll be in Russia in about eight days time. I'm going there to support my brethren. I said, Vadim, you are underpaid, but I want you to know you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. You're following in the footsteps of St. Peter and St. Paul. John Huss, Martin Luther, John... Wesley, these great men who were called to do the most important work, the work of the church. You say, but running committees is the work of the church. My friend, it is a work that needs to be done only to help the preachers of the gospel. The work of the church is to preach the gospel like George Whitfield who came to this country preaching the gospel with a Methodist doctrine, and who would preach with such fervency that after preaching he would cough blood. Somebody said of him, Christ the Son of God hath sent me, Or the widespread lands, mind the mighty ordination of the nail-pierced hand. Vadim is walking in the footsteps of the saints of God including men like George Vanderman and HMS Richards and dare I say it, Danny and Linda Shelton. The question is, why do people do this? Why does Vadim do this when he can come over here? And he can get a comfortable job in a comfortable church and work 30 or 40 hours a week and be paid how much more? 80 times, I don't know, many, many times more. He does it because being a minister to him is not a profession. It is a calling from God not a profession, transcends being a profession. It is a calling from God. He is doing it as we are trying to do it in a humble, small way because the Bible commands it. I want you to take your Bible today, dear friends, and turn with me to Matthew 24 and verse 14 to the words of our Lord. Matthew 24 And verse 14 to the words of Jesus when he speaks to the church he says and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Jesus said this gospel is going to be preached and will be preached. Nothing can stop it. And when this work is done, when the church, my friend, fulfills the plan of God, then Jesus is going to come. And then, of course, all of you know the text in Revelation 14 that introduces the messages of the three angels. And Revelation 14 and verse 6 says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto all those who live on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, it is obvious to a person who reads the prophecies of Revelation that these words are exceedingly significant and these words are symbolic. Because when the Bible talks in Revelation 14 about an angel flying in the midst of heaven, it is not to be taken literally. This angel flying in the midst of heaven is a symbol of God's last message that goes to the world. It is a symbol of a great religious movement composed of boys and girls. One of my friends, Bill Graham, who was sitting here today, talked to me, and he's going to be in our program this afternoon, talked to me this week, and he said to me, when it talks about preaching the gospel, this is not just talking about the early disciples of the apostles, is it? said Bill. He said, this is talking about the work of the church today. And may I remind you that you and I are the church, and if the church does its duty, which is a good word, it is because you and I do it. And if the church does not do its duty, it's because you and I do not do it. Listen my friend. The church is called, listen to this carefully, the church is called not to engage in politics. Our job is not to go to Washington and lobby the senators. That's not our job. We are not called to change society through political activity. We are called to change society through the preaching of the gospel. The purpose of the church is none of those things. It is not building utopia here on this earth. No, no, no. It is not to build a heaven on this earth. It is to take people from this doomed earth and to take them to heaven. May I say this to you and I look into your eye today. The purpose of the church is not primarily to run a welfare system we are called to help the poor but that is not our primary mission our primary mission is not to build hospitals it is good when we do so god calls us to heal the sick but listen our primary mission is to preach the gospel and for every dollar that is built spent on a hospital, we ought to spend a $100 on men like Deem to preach the everlasting gospel. And this is the teaching of the word of God. I've told you before about the Waldenses, those wonderful Christians who preceded the Protestants up there in the hills in the north of Italy who would send out their young men whom they called barbs. Their pastors Two by two who would go down into the valleys and at the risk of their lives they would go with Bibles to preach the gospel. They were missionaries. And there you can see today a monument to the Barbs. This man died burnt at the stake. This man burnt at the stake. They understood in many ways the Bible more than we do. Because they understood that people without Christ are lost. And people are saved through the preaching of the everlasting gospel. And the world NC's had a magnificent saying which is still today written up on on the wall of one of their churches. It says, ye shall be missionaries or ye shall be nothing. And by missionaries they meant people who had a mission to go into the world and to preach the everlasting gospel. And if a church, my friend, doesn't have that mission, if it is not fulfilling that mission, that church ought to be honest and close its doors because it is an obscene irrelevancy in the plan of God. The Bible teaches we are called for one purpose, to communicate to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. Over there in Kiev... You have a wonderful couple. Pastor Merger and his wife. He was the union president for five years. He was thrown into a prison and beaten, suffered for his faith because he believed in Jesus. This was in the days of the communists. He is not only a president. He is a missionary. And his wife, Mrs. Merger, who is no longer a young woman, Is consumed by a passion for the lost, and she goes from town to town, city to city in the Ukraine, preaching the Word of God. My friend, she has an understanding, you see, of the Bible. She is a missionary, and she is something. When I spoke to a large group of Ukrainian soldiers, hundreds of them there, we gave them Bibles, a thousand soldiers. I had the honor of standing with the general as the soldiers passed by us and saluted us. And immediately she made arrangements with the general to move into that place and to preach the word of God. You say to me, but in North America, evangelism is not a popular word. That is, my friend, because in many parts of the church we are in the midst of a dreadful apostasy. This is not universal, but in many parts of the church and our own church there is a dreadful apostasy. There is the preaching of psychology. There is the preaching of everything, but there is no preaching of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we talk glibly about the gospel. Today I want to talk about the gospel. The apostle Paul said in Galatians that the people had turned away from the true gospel Dave and had turned to another gospel. There is only one true gospel. It is like the word love, a wonderful word but tremendously misunderstood. There is only one true gospel and people who say we're preaching the gospel or preaching anything but the gospel. And so today I wish by the grace of God from the scriptures to talk to you about the gospel because the gospel that we preach for the salvation of the world must be the gospel that changes our own lives. Now I have here today... Six little gospel preachers. Six precious little friends. And they're going to be the pastor's helper today and I want them to come. And I want them to bring the signs. I want them to come out here and just come right over here. They're the sweetest children you'll meet anywhere. And we're, they're just going to put those up under their chins. <laughs> So there we have the word gospel. I want you to remember this word today. What is the gospel? For some people it is simply music. For other people it is going to church. For other people it is the second coming of Jesus. But I want to say that the gospel is more than all of these things. The first word you notice of the word gospel, that is the Greek word, for good news is, G. well done, sweetie, excellent, before I even nudged you. And the gospel is about God, and the gospel is about grace. Remember this. The gospel is not advice. It is not going to some lectures taken by a farce talker, a salesman, on self improvement. No, the gospel is not self improvement. It is not advice on how to balance the budget or any of those things. The gospel is the good news about God and the grace of God. Are you doing okay? Is it all right here? You happy? Is it is all right. Is it is not so bad is it. Your mummy's proud of you, I can tell you this. This is one video she's going to buy. <laughs> Now listen to me. On one occasion, Jesus said, I want you to follow me because I'm going to a certain place. And one of the disciples said, Lord, Lord, we don't know the place. Uh, how can we know all about this? And then the disciples said, Lord, if you show us the Father, that'll be good enough for us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now the great question that we need to ask ourselves is this. This is fundamental. What is God like? Because your perception of God will determine the sort of person you are. If you think God is a hard judge, you will be a hard judge on your children, your spouse, and everybody else. If you think God is cold, then you're going to be frozen. Your perception of God determines the person that you are. And Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. What was Jesus like? Jesus was kind and compassionate and forgiving and strong. And the children loved him. He said, let the little children come unto me. He didn't care if they put their sticky fingers on his new suit. But today, don't push it. Jesus, (laughs) listen to this. God, Jesus, was not churchy or religious. I want you to know this, Jesus was not the prim and the proper and the cold person that some of his disciples think Christianity is. He told the greatest stories about God. Don't you remember the story of the bad boy, the lost boy? The boy who went and spent his father's money with prostitutes? And the boy who ended up, a Jewish boy, ended up in the pig pen and got so hungry after wasting his father's money that he came to himself. And then when he goes home, God is waiting for him because this is God. We are the lost boys. The person standing there, the the man with the white beard is God. And when God sees him coming, and this brings us to the point of grace because when God sees the boy coming smelling of the pig pen and the perfume of the prostitutes the Bible says the father who's been looking down the road runs to meet the boy and flings his arm around him and hugs him God believes in hugs he hugs him he kisses him He gets a robe and he puts it on the boy and he puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then he scandalizes the concerned brethren by saying, let's have a party with music. Is this what you are like? You see, people say, well, I don't think God is like that. Well, I'm sorry, my friend, that's what he is like. God is warm and kind. He is strong, but he is a person whom you would be comfortable with. Gospel. Are you ready? Your moment has come. We'll do this together. Are you doing okay? Is this all right being up here? Are you happy today? You're happy? Mm. Can you smile a little? Just a little smile. Here it is, it's there, I knew it was there. And O stands for original sin and only son. Unless you understand original sin and only son, you won't understand the gospel. People say, but that's the term that the Catholics use and I really don't like that. Well, of course, the Catholics also believe in the Bible. They also believe in the Trinity and they believe in the Last Judgment. What is the dog? Now, we don't believe everything that our dear Roman Catholic friends believe on original sin, but the Bible talks about a sin that was done by Adam. And that is the original sin, as theologians will tell you. You don't need to be afraid of some of these terms if you understand them from a biblical viewpoint. Would you come over here to Romans chapter 5? And verse 12, dear hearts and gentle people, are you having a good time in church today? Romans chapter five, and aren't these children beautiful? Mm -hmm. Wait till we get them in this new church with their own room. Romans chapter five and verse 12, the Bible says, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. This is not the teaching of a man. It's the teaching of the Bible. That sin came into the world through Adam. And because of Adam's sin. We are all infected. With this vicious death dealing virus of sin. This is why little babies who consciously have never done anything right or wrong. Die because the human race came under the dominion of death because of sin. Every one of us is infected. Every one of us is affected. The Bible says, David says, I was born in sin and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born sinners. We are born with propensities and tendencies to evil. And because we are all lost, the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you about this word, only begotten, as it appears in the King James Version. It comes, I'm told, by some of my scholarly friends and once upon a time, years ago, I did study Greek but I've forgotten most of it, 99% of it. But the word only begotten is the Greek word "monogenes," and it means the only one of its kind. For instance, in Hebrews 11, we are told that Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac, and he was the only begotten boy. But bless your heart, didn't he have Ishmael also? So what does it mean when it says that Isaac is the only begotten? It means that he was the only one who could do the work that God called him to do. And the ancient Greeks had a legend about the phoenix bird. This bird that would die and then it would be resurrected from in the fire. They called it the only begotten, the monogenes. And Jesus is the Monogenes; he is the only begotten son of the Father. There is nobody else like him in the whole of the universe, my friend. There is no person like Jesus because Jesus is completely unique. You see, he is fully God and he is fully man. And in the councils of heaven, millions of years, how long ago, I don't know, the Trinity met together. And it was decreed in the councils of heaven that the second person of the Godhead would come down to this earth and die on the cross for our sins because of the sin that had come into the world that has affected and infected all of us. And uh, here we come to S, which stands for salvation. Everybody needs salvation. But only those who recognize that they are sinners feel their need of salvation. And I want you to look at the next word here. Salvation by and through suffering. You and I do not merit salvation through our suffering. No, no, no. But our salvation was bought at an awful price. The Bible says in the days of his flesh he offered up to his father prayers with crying and tears. On the cross he went through hell. For the guilt of our sins the nails drove in when him they crucified. Never think that salvation is free. Salvation was purchased by the one monogamous the only begotten on the cross and it cost him the silver of his tears and the gold of his blood. He went through physical and spiritual torment on the cross and in the garden that you and I might have the gospel. The next word, P, stands for propitiation and peace. I want you to turn now to one of the greatest passages in the Bible. It's really the Acropolis of Scripture. It's a passage you and I ought to memorize by heart. Would you please come to Romans 3 and verse 23 and onwards? And I'll read it here out of the NIV, but then I'll also quote it to you from the King James. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and onwards. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The King James Version that we all love that I was brought up on says, God presented him as a propitiation. This is a big word. I wonder what on earth does this word mean? Propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. And it means literally the mercy seat. Now, you know, in the ancient sanctuary, thank you, Dave. In the ancient sanctuary, they had a most holy place where only the high priest could go. And in the most holy place, they had an ark. In the ark was the law of God that every one of us has broken a million times. And the Bible tells us that the high priest would go there one day in the year And he would sprinkle blood before the ark and on the ark. Over the mercy seat there were the angels representing the hosts of heaven. So in the ark you have the law of God. Over the ark you have the angels. And there you also have between the cherubim the presence of God. The Shekinah glory of God. The high priest would go in there with fear. Trusting only in God. And he would take blood and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And the blood represented the spilt blood of the cross. And when God, the offended father, the judge of all the earth, would look down upon the broken law, the law that we have broken a million times, he would not see our sins, but he would see the blood of Christ. And it is through this, this propitiation, through the mercy seat, that we have peace with God. Don't we? Peace with God. The word propitiation has been abused and misunderstood by some who said God must be propitiated in the sense that he is an angry God. Now this is a pagan concept. But I want you to know something God is a God who has a righteous indignation against sin. And when you read this text in Romans chapter 3 in the the NIV, it says, God gave him to be a sacrifice, thus turning away wrath. Turning away wrath. Was there wrath on the cross? You say, these are strange, strange concepts. My friend, there was wrath on... On the cross, the wrath of God was directed against Christ who had become sin for us. Why did he cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He was bearing our sin. He had become our atoning sacrifice whereby you and I can have peace. This, of course, It's the heart of the gospel. How are you doing today? You're doing okay. And of course, the gospel doesn't deal with trivial themes, does it? The gospel deals with themes that are as wide as the universe, eternity and election. Let me tell you something quite amazing. If you looked at the new year, who cough? Did I hear someone coughing when you're on television? I can see you. That was a lovely cough. I have never heard a nicer cough in church. I watched the New Year celebrations. And of course, I looked at Sydney. Sydney. And uh, you'll remember that magnificent fireworks display at the opera house where we have held meetings and there was the great arch of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and they turned it in for a while into a waterfall. You remember seeing this? And then in the midst of all the fire and all the lightning and all the glory, the words, Eternity. We're seen from one side of the bridge to the other. Australians are not noted for being churchy people. You see, most of them think it's just a lot of hypocrisy and sham. They think it's just all talk. So they're not really religious people, not all of them. But there you heard the words eternity. Beverly Nice... Eternity. This is the most religious celebration of the year 2000 coming from Sydney, Australia. You know why? It was to celebrate an old, old eccentric Australian. There are some there too as well as here. And this old eccentric would travel. Did you like that one, Dave? You're the only one who got it. Uh, there, were, there was this old eccentric bushwhacker, Swaggy who traveled around Sydney all his life and he would find big stones and he would write on the stones, Eternity. So if you travel around Sydney today, you will see a big rock and the words, this old man has died. I think somebody else has taken over his job. The word Eternity. He was an old man who wanted to call attention to hard-driving, materialistic capitalistic Australians that there were more important things than buildings and bridges and cars and refrigerators that the most important thing was eternity. You see, earthly things will pass away but only he who does the will of God will abide forever. Only God is eternal and the good news of the gospel is that you can spend eternity with God. And here we have the word, and you're doing so good, the word election. People say, that's a word that makes me embarrassed. It's like predestination. Sorry, my friend, it's a Bible word. The Bible talks about God's elect. It talks about people being called by God. That's what election is. I believe, I do not believe in Calvinism that God has called some to be lost and called some to be saved. I believe that God would call every person to be saved. And I want you to know today that God is calling you. But whether you're going to be saved or not, whether I am saved or not, is determined by whether we say yes to God. You say One young man was confused about the doctrine of election. He said, I don't like it. And he went to an old pastor and said, can you explain it to me? Yes, my boy, I can explain it to you. Election? Oh, he says, did you know God has an election just like the Americans do to bring in a president? But there are two people who will always vote for you. You can count on two votes in God's election. The devil will always vote for you because he wants you. And God will always vote for you because he died for you. And he said, the good thing is, my boy, you have the casting vote. And that's how it is, my friend. You and I today have the casting vote so that if we choose and give our lives to Christ, we can be with him forever. The gospel. How are you doing, sweetie pie? You're doing fine. Let's have a look over here. L stands for liberty. And L stands for life. When Jesus came, one of his first sermons, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up those who are broken and those who are burdened. And then he said, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. You and I are the captives of sin without the grace of God. When I spoke in Irkutsch to that vast audience I was conscious of the fact that I was talking to people, thousands of them who had been sent there during the days of Stalin as prisoners. I was talking to prisoners. But my friend There is a slavery worse than communism. There is the slavery of Satan. And Jesus came to purchase our salvation through suffering. He was our propitiation. He has called us and elected us for eternity that you and I might have liberty. Of course, this country saw a time of dreadful slavery The day came when Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the emancipation of the slaves and when Jesus died on the cross he proclaimed the emancipation of the human race to the people who would accept it. And there's another word with liberty comes life. Jesus said I have come that they may have life." This is John 10. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And precious friend, this life is not just life in eternity, but it's life now. When you have Christ, you start to live. The good news of the Gospel is the greatest news in the world. It is the mission of the church to proclaim this news. God's grace. Victory over original sin through the only son. Salvation through suffering on the cross. Our propitiation who brought us peace. Our atoning sacrifice for all eternity. We are his elect. And he gives us today liberty and life now. One last little part of our drama. Can you all turn them around? And I want every person to look today at the gospel. Listen carefully to this. My beloved friends, our mission is not to run worldly enterprises as a church. No, no, no. That's not our mission. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that people can be saved. Some would say, but they're saved while they're in darkness. Well, my friend, let's not tell them. Let's keep them in darkness. But the Bible teaches that men and women without the blood of Christ are lost. And when people come to Christ, they're saved. And my appeal to you as you watch on television, as you listen in church, is that you and I will light a candle in the darkness. You may say, I can't do much. Yes, you can do lots. You can light a candle. My favorite preacher in church history is John Wesley, who lived now just on 300 years ago. John Wesley preached until he was an old man, white hair, strong, wonderful, sainted God. He'd been preaching all day out in the fields, because they wouldn't let him in the churches. And that night he came into an inn, an English inn, and the crowds came in. John Wesley, an old tied man, started to climb up the stairs. He was so tired. And as he went up the stairs, they passed him a candle. He held up the candle. They said to him, Preach to us the gospel. He believed what you heard today. He held the candle. And he preached to them his last sermon. And as he held up the candle and preached the sermon to the people who filled in the, in the spaces there at the bottom of the stairs, the candle burnt down and down and down. And finally the candle went out. And John Wesley went up to bed and fell asleep in Christ. Never forget it is far better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. The church of God is called to hold up a candle by the preaching of the gospel. That is her divine and her only mission. So help us God. Amen. Now we're going to pray. Let us bow our heads. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Christ. We thank you that he became our propitiation. That he brought us salvation through suffering. We thank you that he did this, that we might spend eternity with God. And that this eternal life starts the moment we accept Christ. Bless these dear people here today and teach us to know today that the mission of the church is not commerce, it's not just building buildings and carrying on good enterprises. It is the preaching of the gospel that saves the souls of men and women and we have been called to light a candle in the darkness. Oh God, help us to do that. As we're praying here today, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, how many will raise a hand and say, today I accept Jesus as my Savior and I believe in the gospel. I take the gospel into my heart. Would you raise your hand today to believe and accept not any gospel, but the true gospel. Dear Father, take these upraised hands and these upraised hearts Bless these precious people. For Jesus' sake, amen.